This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to Episode 35 of Aviation Careers Podcast, where we help you achieve your goals and give you an inside view of the various careers in aviation. Many pilots have an interest in technology and computers. Many times people change careers from computers to aviation, as I did. Some people are able to successfully combine both careers into one. Well, my guest today is Chris Olson, and he's living a life he's designed. Chris is an airline pilot and a computer programmer. Chris is passionate about both his careers and is here to share with us how he was able to combine both these careers. Well, welcome uh, to Aviation Careers Podcast, Chris. Thank you uh, very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Cressy, you know, the, it's really cool to be able to do two things that you really enjoy at once, but uh, you you actually developed a passion for both uh, aviation and for computers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your aviation passion, how that developed, and then, and then get into maybe how you got into computers. Sure thing. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, um, as far as aviation goes, uh, it's one of those things where you, you think back to uh, your early years and... Uh, just always had a, a very keen aviation uh, interest in aviation. That is, um, just from the standpoint of you know, when family would go on vacation, it would just the plane flight was always uh, a really big part of it. It was something I, I really looked forward to, and um, had the opportunity with uh, with my father to do some uh, some radio control modeling and uh, put together a great many plastic models as a, as a kid. So uh, it's really dates back to as far as I can remember. I can't remember a time where I just wasn't really fascinated by uh, aviation and, and aircraft and uh, just really the whole uh, kind of general kind of world of flying. Uh, as, as far as that goes, I didn't really have anyone in the family who was in the aviation industry. So it wasn't until actually my senior year of high school when I was able to take a course called Aviation Science, which was basically the material covered in, say, like a private pilot ground school course, but in a two-semester setting. So I remember spending a really, really long time on uh, flight planning and uh, really uh, kind of went much more in-depth than, say, uh, a standard uh, maybe, uh, you know, single-semester private pilot ground school would go into. Uh, I actually had a, a good friend whose father flew in the Army, and he was taking flying lessons. He actually started when he was uh, 13 or 14 years old. But I just wasn't able to quite maybe put it together at that young of an age to where I could actually get in the, in the plane and start flying. And uh, a component of the... Uh, the chorus was to go out with uh, actually American flyers and and the whole class would have uh, kind of an intro ride, you know, a few, uh, you know, I think it was a, a touch and go in the pattern out at uh, the local airport. And unfortunately, that got weathered out. So we went out there and we got to uh, kind of see the aircraft, but we didn't actually get to do that. So uh, my actually, my first flight lesson didn't come until the... Um, summer of 1997, which I'll get into uh, a little bit later on. But uh, so I guess the I, I had that really keen interest, but I wasn't able to really put that into the point where I was starting to take lessons until I was actually um, uh, 17, 18 years old. Uh, as far as computers go, 
uh, that's something I was able to really actively do from a, a young age. Uh, we had uh, a home computer in the house when I was three years old. It was an old 8-bit Atari 400, and uh, we were able to uh, to have that because my father was in the research and development department at a local university, and they hosted one of the first uh, computer camps for uh, for Atari, and that was... Uh, able to to generate enough interest in the camp did well enough that we eventually were able to receive the same hardware the same computer that the the camp was using so uh that uh that carried us kind of through basically through the 80s and uh from a young age I I really was interested in programming so I dug right into basic and pilot and logo and some of the other kind of lower level languages and uh was able to uh to really kind of do that through most of uh, grade school and then kind of continuing on. What came first, the computers or the uh, the aviation that you were actually making money with? Oh gosh, good question. Well, I guess tech that's a that's kind of an interesting interesting side of that, but uh, actually it was uh, computers in high school, 14, 15 years old, uh, there was uh, uh, there were several people who just whether it was like through the doctor that I went to see or parents of, of friends that I had who said, you know, geez, I, I really need, uh, you know, I need to install Windows or I need to, uh, you know, upgrade my computer. And, uh, um, you know, we had been kind of building our own computers or purchasing components uh, really for a couple of years. So this was something that I was able to do. And actually, I never, you know, I was, I was still pretty young, but uh I asked around, and they said, "All right, well, Chris, this is what you should charge." So I actually made a a pretty decent hourly wage, especially for being, uh, you know, a freshman or sophomore in high school. And I would go in, and people would have a computer problem, and I would, you know, spend the requisite time and fix it, and then, you know, possibly show the uh, the person or the persons how to. Okay, this is a new version of Windows. You, you know, here's here's a couple things to get you started. If if you need help, just go ahead and give me a call. And that actually did pretty well. I um, I had kind of a lot of other things going on, other extracurricular activities in high school. So I wasn't able to really kind of give that kind of side business the attention that maybe I should have. But it certainly was uh, enough to keep it going and, and got my name out there a little bit and uh, and certainly let me stay current with uh, kind of the technologies and the emerging software and hardware of that time. So certainly it was uh, certainly computers that uh, I was able to uh, first make money. Um, as far as aviation goes, um, I mentioned I started in flying in the summer of 1997 in Orlando. I actually had uh, a summer job there, so that would be in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I had uh, I had looked into the flying uh, flying lessons in the Chicago area, and they were prohibitively expensive. Uh, I know now that I wasn't really looking in some of the right places, but just the the few large schools that I found were just uh, uh, certainly too expensive for what uh, for kind of what I had available at the time. But it was nice to find that in Orlando, the price was about or the cost was about half of what I had uh, been quoted or seen in Chicago. So I literally every cent that I had uh, of extra went into the flight lesson. I remember I just happened to was just very lucky walk into a great flight school. It was part 91. It was relatively small, but it just had really good, a, a fantastic person running it. And I just happened to uh, walk in and, and have a, a great instructor kind of greet me and talk me through. And he said, he said, Chris, go ahead and go to a few of the other schools 
and check it out a little bit. He said, Orlando's got a lot of flight schools. So, you know, go take a look. And, you know, if you, if you, if you like what we have to offer here, we, we'd love to have you. And uh, I went to a few of the other places, some of the larger schools, and, uh, and I came right back to the, the one that I found originally. And it was, uh, it was really a, a, just a, a really, just, again, a very lucky kind of uh, thing. I just happened to stumble on this, this great school. And I remember instructor's name was Joe. Joe said, right, okay, well, do you want to go for an intro flight or would you like to uh, just go with lesson one? And I was so thrilled to be doing this and kind of living on my own and everything else. I said, no, let's go for lesson one. And, uh, and that was that I was in a, a 152 in the, uh, kind of in the heat Orlando summer heat. And, uh, well, I just had a great time. I was, I was hooked from, from that point forward. You know, going back to something you said though, you said you were looking at schools and you said you were kind of looking in the wrong places. Could, could you expand on that a little bit or sure. make, for people who are looking for a school right now? Maybe that'll help. Absolutely. I, I just, I didn't, um, I guess what I mean by that is I, you know, opened the phone book and, uh, this is before the internet, kind of hard to imagine, but, uh, you know, opened the phone book, called a few places and they were the, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the larger names that are still around. I certainly, these are, are fantastic schools. They were just quite expensive at the time. This was American Flyers and, uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of the, that was certainly the one that's, that's still, has a kind of a large presence today. There were a few others and I didn't know to look into flying clubs or the civil air patrol or to really maybe just see if I could find a few, uh, instructors or to, uh, go to the community college and, and see if, if somebody was teaching ground school, if they were affiliated with, uh, with a flight school. So I, I just, you know, opening the phone book and, and trying to look was just, um, kind of what I did. And, uh, and there are, are certainly um, some other avenues out there. And the, the two big ones being the Flying Club and the Civil Air Patrol. Now, I did not end up, uh, you know, in either of those uh, kind of those avenues. But as I found myself in the instructor role trying to advise people on what to do, certainly um, those were, were two avenues that um, if I had possibly known, uh, there were a few flying clubs that I found much later. I said, wow, this, this really would have been a, a, a good, you know, a, a, maybe a way that I could have uh, made this somewhat affordable at a younger age. So, um, so that, that's really what I mean by that. But I just was kind of limited to the schools that had the, uh, the wherewithal to just advertise in the phone book. And that was uh, a little bit of a, a sticker shock. I got out there and, and they, were, they were great folks, but I just went, wow, that's, uh, that's probably going to have to wait a little while. That's, uh, I didn't, didn't even at that time, years ago, didn't realize how kind of expensive it was. So You actually were the type of person that was doing the pay-as-you-go type of thing. Uh, so you didn't have a whole big chunk of money to place down, sounds like, uh, to go to one of these big schools. Yeah, that's that's true, and that uh, that actually turned out to be a, a really really great thing for me. Um, starting out, I, I was able to receive my private in the in September of '98, and uh, that's a, a long kind of winding journey to how I got there. But um, I was a month late starting in Orlando. I started in July. If I had started flying the day I got there, I maybe at the very least would have been kind of much further along. I was able to solo down in uh in orlando but uh i kind of had to start over in the standpoint of getting checked out and some other things my next summer job was in new mexico in santa fe great thing about that was we were right across the street from the santa fe airport 
but um, you know, it's it just kind of have to get reacquainted. And each each school is going to be different. Each instructor is going to be a, a little different. So there is uh, definitely a downside to having to kind of move around and and you know, kind of start all over again. And then, to be honest, I went to school in uh, central Illinois, and there there I had kind of the opposite problem. There were just not a lot of flight schools, and uh, the ones that that were there were either you know, very, very expensive or were, were kind of specialized. There were, there were some tailwheel schools and uh, some a- agricultural type uh, of schools, but I really had to struggle. I struggled to find an airplane and an instructor, and eventually I did, and it was, you know, another kind of great chapter in, in just happening to, uh, you know, find a really, really fantastic person. And that's in Lincoln, Illinois, is actually where I uh, attained my private. It's a, a just right in between Bloomington and Springfield, Illinois, just almost right in the middle there, right off of the interstate. But for the private license, it was just money that I had cobbled together and uh, I was borrowing a friend's automobile to drive down there. So it was, uh, it was not a real, uh, it was not a real seamless or, or easy thing to kind of accomplish. But after, after I was able to, to attain the private license, uh, I did have uh, some money set aside for graduate school. Talked to my folks and said, "Okay, you know, this is uh, this is something that uh, I, I really want to do." And you know, I think you know, instead of graduate school, I think this would be uh, you know beneficial there. So, so for the instrument through uh, flight instructor rating, I did have money to draw on, but it was certainly a finite amount, and I was very very careful and had to be kind of planned to where I really tried to get the most out of each and every lesson, even if it was, you know, bad weather and it was just a ground lesson or, or something like that. And I was very, very fortunate. Um, I was advised by my instructor, my private instructor in Lincoln, uh, a gentleman named Larry Whitbeck, who was fantastic. He said, Chris, go ahead and, and get your ground instructor ratings uh, he said it's the same material or just about the same material that's on the private and instrument, et cetera. And he said uh, it might come in handy one day. He said it's it's just another you know it's another written test. And he said I know it's an expense, but he said go ahead and get that, especially if you're gearing up to take the instrument written or the commercial written. So I did that, and wouldn't you know it, I walk into um, uh, the flight school where I would eventually teach, and the boss who was had an education background said, wow, you have your ground instructor rating. Why, why do you have this? No one has this. I said, well, I was, I was advised by uh, my old instructor to get this. He said, fantastic. When can you start teaching ground school? And, uh, and that uh, kind of launched me into my, uh, uh, kind of my, the teaching kind of portion of my career. I was able to, uh, to teach at Triton College, which was very close to where I grew up, and had in that I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but in that first private pilot ground school, I had uh, students who would kind of stick with me through for for many years after that, and uh, it was just a really remarkable thing. That's not to say that you know certainly you know you can go out and get your your, your ground instructor rating and it will just you know maybe kind of sit there on your certificate, but it was I mean I, I couldn't believe how you know, Larry's voice going, Hey, you should get this. You never know. And it just, it actually did lead to something that, uh, pretty remarkable. So you're bringing this up though, is an important point because we get a lot of people that, that write in and ask if they should get their ground instructor certificate. So I'm going to assume you you would say to them, yes, I would. Absolutely. 
again, I know the uh, the written tests are expensive. I I haven't looked recently. I'm sure it's it's you know even even more more pricey than it it was several years ago. But certainly from the standpoint of uh, preparing for like a normal private or instrument written, uh, the material is very, very similar. I, I'm, and I'm sorry, my memory's a little bit vague on this, but I think there were a few fundamentals of instructing type questions, but I, I could be wrong on that. I'm pretty sure the bank of questions is identical, if not maybe just very, very, certainly not enough to cause you to, to fail the test. But, uh, so if you can kind of combine that, then you can look at it as, okay, well, I can prepare for the private pilot written and the basic ground instructor or the instrument written and the instrument ground instructor. And just if you have, if you have the resource to do that, um, it really certainly made a difference for me. And certainly now looking at, uh, you know, trying to pursue what I hope to be the end phase of my airline career it is something that distinguishes you, uh, certainly, and that's something I suppose we can talk about later or certainly now, but in this, you know, in the, in the airline realm of, um, you know, folks wanting to go to a major airline, uh, I just have a feeling that not a lot of people have this ground instructor rating, and it's something that I get to put on a resume if I'm, you know, putting it into a computer or something that maybe that will, that's kind of an additional point. And for the, for the folks who certainly want to start flying with the airlines, um, I just think it, it's not very common and it certainly could lead to an opportunity maybe you know, outside of the realm of flight instructing to where maybe the airline or maybe the corporate operator is looking for people to teach a class. Maybe they're looking for someone to teach uh, recurrent ground school or something that might lead to uh, a flying job or just a, maybe that would allow someone who really wants to teach to teach in that setting and then, you know, instruct on the side or something like that. So I really, I, I think the, the reward far outweighs the, uh, the cost in that, and uh, at the very least, it it kind of allows people to set themselves apart. I think that's important. I mean, setting yourself apart, and there's many different things you can do. Like people ask me if they want should get their mechanics license, and I'm sure go ahead and do it. Don't let it get yeah. in the way of your flying if that's what you want to do. But it really does set you apart. I. Uh, discuss that with somebody at uh, one of the airlines, and they said, "Yeah, we want to hear about all those other things that you've done." If there's some one thing, there's something on there that 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 really stands out, and most people don't have, we'll probably hire you before somebody else. So that's a, sure. that's a great point, Chris. Thanks. Great point. The uh, now you had started doing this ground instructing. Now you went from there. You actually started making money as a ground instructor, and then you were able to finish up your flight instructor certificate fairly soon afterwards. Or, or how did that progress? Yes, um, I was able to. Uh, I was able to do an internship during school. Uh, that would be the spring of 1999. I actually uh, lived at home for that for that semester. Uh, attended a few classes at the place where my father worked, just to keep the kind of the credits flowing there. And uh, I had an an internship in the city, and then I was able to. Uh, really devote a lot of time to flying when I, you know, I only had school a few days a week and uh, I tried to schedule the internship with the same, uh, kind of on days when I, when I had, uh, classes. So basically all the rest of the time I had to devote to, uh, at that time I was working on my instruments. So I was able to do instrument commercial 
after the commercial rating, I actually started teaching. Uh, the first semester that I taught ground school was summer of 99. I, w- I was able to teach. And then uh, I didn't, didn't actually attain my, my CFI until uh, May of 2000. So it was a full year because I had to go back and finish school. It was a shortened, almost like an intro uh, kind of session. And most of the people came back who were in that session and attended the full private pilot ground school that I started to teach right as I, as I graduated from college. It was a, a summer one that was a full one. And those were where my first students came from. So I had kind of a, a little bit of a, an introduction initially concurrent with uh, working on the advanced ratings, but then was really able to jump in and, uh, you know, do my classroom time. And then I, it was, it was really fortunate, but I was able to, uh, it was, it was known pretty early on. Um, and I would, every once in a while, my boss would come by and say, Hey, Chris, you know, you got to graduate school, but you're going to come work for us. Right. And so it was, it was really pretty nice that, uh, that I was able to transition right into, uh, an instructing job, and uh, I just can't say enough good things about my uh, my boss and and the people that I worked with. Uh, he was he didn't have a degree in aviation science or aviation management. He was one who felt very strongly that you should have a degree in something else, and you can certainly pursue whatever avenue you wanted to in aviation without an aviation science degree. And I think there, that's certainly a point that could be debated. I can definitely see uh, the advantages of going to a school that's well-connected and has you know, a career center and internships and kind of an infrastructure in place that is difficult to match from. But on the other hand, uh, it is maybe a little refreshing or certainly in a lot of different paths to get to the airlines or, or whatever your eventual goal is. And uh, at least still to this day, it's still kind of just a, a blanket four-year degree requirement. It doesn't say you have to have a, a bachelor's in science or an engineering degree or something like that. So um, I found that it, it definitely does bring in uh, you know, people with very different backgrounds. And so it's something that I certainly enjoy, but certainly that was something that he felt very strongly about. Well, it gives you options too. I mean, there, if you were, uh, what did you get a degree in again? My degree is actually in uh, theater arts. Theater arts. I was, okay. uh, yep. I was a lighting and sound person, and uh, the internship in Florida was uh, was with Disney World, and the internship in New Mexico was with the Santa Fe Opera, and then the internship in Chicago was with the Goodman Theater. So that was uh, another interest that uh, was kind of a, a burgeoning thing, and I I kind of felt like I had to choose. I said, well, I have all these things I want to do, but. Um, I felt like I really wanted to pursue aviation just a little bit more than uh, than lighting, and uh, I've been able to to do a a few things here and there to uh, kind of just stay very very somewhat involved in a in a very kind of distant manner in lighting. Something I definitely still enjoy, but my my heart really lies, or my my passion is is really in aviation and. Um, and computers. And so now during this process of, 
of you know you got your degree in theater arts which i think is fascinating and and it makes you much more well-rounded like you said it is good to go to some of those schools that have well connected to the airlines and and of course you have all that networking that they can do for you in the career sure. centers etc but you know there's a lot of airlines nowadays that are looking at the the well-rounded person they want to see what else you can do uh besides just flying they, they want to hear your story I, I think that's that's terrific but the thing is, though, it sounds like you really couldn't do much with computers. So you kind of seems like you almost had to put that on the side during this process. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a good point. And um, this is this is something where I can I can look back and definitely admit that uh, I, I certainly wasn't perfect in any of this. And I I felt like I, I just had such a such a great connection with learning the the early computers, and then. In the work I was able to do with with whether it was fixing, building, or um, you know just kind of staying involved in computers through kind of the high school years. So we're talking technology wise that would put it right around the the two eighty six through the four eighty six. Um, so we're talking Windows three point one and uh, you know in that era, I felt like I really had a, a strong handle on on things and, and could um, you know really hold my own as far as troubleshooting a problem or something like that. So that certainly was was valuable. Uh, as far as programming, though, if I had had some structure in place that to teach kind of the higher level languages, so uh, by that I mean C and C++, and um, the, those languages, C++ in particular, was just becoming kind of popular and uh, really represents a big shift. I'm, I'm sure you know this as far as, you know, the lower level stuff was all very, uh, you know, you start here, you end here, and that's just how it goes. There's a big paradigm shift, which I really didn't understand as uh, as a teenager. What the, kind of the shift to object oriented, which we can we can chat about in a little while. Um, I didn't. There was there wasn't a class available in high school to really say, all right, this is you're going to learn. You're going to learn C in the first semester, and then the next semester you're going to learn C If there had you know, maybe, maybe things would have, would have turned out differently, but I kind of had to, uh, kind of make my own way. And, uh, I felt like I was able to learn enough, but not enough to really put me in the programmer kind of, you know, to wear the programmer hat as far as the languages of, um, you know, kind of the, the IBM and the, the late eighties and, and early nineties. I felt like I really had a, a pretty good handle, on the 8-bit languages of, you know, basic and, and pilot and some Pascal to some degree. But, uh, so that, that was a little bit frustrating. And, uh, um, I just, I really with, you know, like I said, pursuing, you know, some other interests and sports and et cetera. I just, I didn't, if I had really looked, I probably could have found a, a maybe a community college course or some different avenue to go. But, uh, but it did, you're, you're absolutely right. So then going into college, I, I certainly wanted to choose a college that had a computer science department, and I had every intention of of perhaps uh, achieving a double major or a major minor. And I was on the computer science minor track, and I just uh, I just ran into a little bit of a buzzsaw. the uh, The department had just split off from the math department a year or two before. So looking back now, I can see that the faculty were still kind of trying to feel their way and and you know figure out what classes fit where I had a, it was a big part of my final grade. I had an assignment to do and it was, I'll never forget it. It was, uh, indexing an array. And so basically, uh, you have a, 
you have several objects and you have to put them in a, an orderly sequence and be able to retrieve them. And most of the folks in the class were just copying the, uh, you know, basically cut and pasting the text out of the textbook. So I had a, a like-minded friend and I said, well, this is ridiculous. We're not, I mean, this is part of the final grade and this is kind of a slow way to do it. So we were really not being intentionally difficult. We just thought we'd figured out a better way. And I was actually the one who came up and said, let's do a three-dimensional array and we'll be able to, to really increase the speed and, and really kind of knock the socks off of this project. And uh, so we came up with that and, and I, I got a, a terrible grade and a see me note for, to see the professor. So I went in there and he said, well, you didn't complete the project. And I said, well, sir, I, I said, I, you know, I said, everyone else was copying the, you know, the solution out of the book. I said, you know, this is a large project and I, I feel like I, I figured out a, maybe a different way to do it. I didn't even think I said a better way to do it. And he just had none of it. So that uh, 19 years old and I was just immediately disenfranchised. I said, that's it. I'm leaving the department. Uh, if this is, you know, I, I thought that I didn't think I had invented anything fantastic, but I just thought, wow, if this is the way that, uh, that my kind of, you know, solution is met with a, a lousy grade, uh, reluctance to change it. And a basically, sorry, you should have just copied it out of the book. I said, I, this is, you know, I, I can, I I just didn't really want to associate. And boy, looking back, I do regret that. I should have kind of cooled my heels and not rushed into the registrar's office and, you know, erased the minor from the Scantron paper. I should have just let it be and, and tried to maybe take some courses that uh, were taught by different people. So that is something I regret because uh, there was still some some serious intrinsic value to the courses that I could have taken had I pursued the minor. But uh, it set me back a little bit. Uh, I, I felt like I didn't really have uh, a phenomenal understanding of these higher-level languages that I've talked about. And it would, wouldn't be until much later, kind of the advent of uh, tutorials and kind of the advanced kind of notion of uh, what's available in this kind of openware setting that I'd love to chat about too, that I would be able to pick back up and, and really get back in the game. So you're very accurate, a, a long answer to the question, but uh, it was uh, something that, and a decision that I wish I, I could go back and change simply to, you know, be able to have had the opportunity to learn more in the college setting or the university setting, um, despite whatever disagreements I had had uh, in the moment. But you've actually been able to get into the computers again, you know, and, and that, that's good. You've pursued that. But going, going back to that, the, the aviation career, I do want to talk about the, the computers too, is uh, now during this process, you finished a degree, then how in the world did you become an airline pilot? It sounds like all your focus was on something other than, than flying. So how did you get to the point of being a flight instructor, finishing college, and then get into the airline career? That's a, a great question. Uh, I, um, like I said, I was able to was able to start flying, uh, kind of concurrent with my internship down in in Florida, it, but it wasn't until the following year. So this is uh, summer of '98, where it was at that point in my life where I said I really want to pursue aviation as a career. Yeah, for some strange reason, there was uh, Great Lakes was actually flying a 1900 from 
I had had to be Denver, Denver to Santa Fe every day. And then there were, I think there was another smaller airline that's not around anymore that was uh, doing some just a, a limited amount of service. And I remember um, going to the airport to take lessons and going, you know what, I I could do this. I need to at least try to do this and find some way to uh, to try to do this. It'd be one of these things where I'll look back at a at an advanced age and go, boy, I really wish I had done that. And I said, I don't want to be. I don't want that to happen. So uh, certainly, I was. I was at that point. I was pretty well down the path of, uh, you know, of my degree in in theater arts. And I said, I have to find some way to to fit this into my life and 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 make it happen. And that was, uh, as I've discussed a little bit, that was a struggle. Um, certainly in uh, in Santa Fe, it was it was a little bit easier. It was. I was. I was fortunate if I if I was able to fly once or twice a week. Uh, the work at the opera was was great, but it was it was very intense, and uh, we actually had someone quit a few days before the season opened. So everyone's off days just went out the window. So thank goodness I had been able to fly a little bit leading up to that. But it was. Um, I, we worked almost like medical or lawyer type hours at the rest of the summer. It was 100, 110 hour weeks and uh, maybe an off day, you know, sometime, but it was, it definitely was, uh, you know, was not an ideal kind of learning environment, but I was able to, again, find a, a good flight school and good instructor. And I was actually all set to take my check ride in the morning and drive all the way back to Illinois or start to, uh, and that would have been in late August of 98. And it was the only day all summer that it rained in the morning. And I said, well, that's an omen. So I went to the airport, paid my bills, started to drive, and made it to Missouri, and then got back to school. And then luckily was able to really get spooled back up. And it was only, um, you know, a couple of flights with uh, back with, you know, the old airplane and my uh, my previous instructor, to when I was able to get my private pilot license, so uh, I didn't really feel like I was I was dealt a, a, a huge setback in that regard. But everything leading up to that, I mentioned I uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but I was uh, I didn't have a car, so the person I was living with said, "Well, I grew up here. I have a car. If you want to go flying, just borrow my car, put gas in it." So uh, I went flying as often as as I could, and certainly in the winter time in uh, Illinois, those of you in the Midwest know that uh, it's uh, it's a challenge. You can have three, four, or five days of icing and kind of horrible conditions. So I, I had I, at that point I had felt like I'd been to enough locations and been through enough checkouts that. I knew at least a little bit what to focus on to try to get reacquainted. Certainly in the beginning, in the first 50 hours, there was a lot of wheel spinning in, in kind of changing locations. So that's, you know, if, if there's advice to be given there, it's if you can at least get to the point where you can solo or maybe through one of the beginning ratings, I think it's probably, it's a little easier to kind of restart after that. But certainly there was, uh, uh, or there was a large element of having to kind of, you know, go back over things and, and really do that. A lot cheaper, too. Yeah, gosh, definitely. But uh, to, to, to answer your question, uh, it was, um, so it was after that sophomore year summer coming back, and that was one of the main reasons um, in my junior year, that, uh, that spring of 99, where I did the internship uh, and lived at home, that I knew that I was going to be able to focus on, 
on flying and try to make a, as much progress as I could given kind of a semester's long period. And there I was able to fly three or four days a week. And I was very uh, happy to do that. And, uh, and it was, I knew kind of I'd made the right decision. So as far as getting to be an airline pilot, the flight school I was fortunate to be connected with, which was the Illinois Aviation Academy out in DuPage, uh, West Chicago, Illinois. The boss at the time was flying for Midwest Airlines and had uh, worked out a little bit of a pilot program with their wholly owned uh, affiliate, which was Skyway Airlines called the Midwest Express Connection, and basically had uh, um, a very an informal but kind of gentleman's agreement with uh, the Human Resources Department there where he would uh, send a few instructors up to interview and uh, that they would be, you know, be given a look or at least a shot at, uh, at a job with them, you know, maybe with uh, slightly lower minimums than what they had posted. So let's see. Summer of 2001, I started with Skyway in June of 2001, went, uh, interviewed, was able to, uh, to attain the job and was on the way to the simulator out in LaGuardia when September 11th happened. So that was, uh, kind of a, kind of a, a rough start. So it was furloughed for about a year, went back, got recalled in 2002, uh, went back and was able to actually fly this time and then got furloughed again April 1st of 2003 and started with with the airline I'm at now in May of 03 and then upgraded to uh, to captain in June of 05 and have been uh, have been there ever since so kind of a rocky start but uh, really it's been uh, it's been nice that I've been able to kind of kind of you know move along and, and enjoy some stability here. I was going to say, what uh, what kind of equipment are you flying now? And you know, I guess the other thing is, it's kind of cool to hear about what people are flying and and what you like about it. Oh, sure, absolutely, yeah. I'm on the uh, Embraer 170, and uh, was fortunate to be one of the first groups to go through and uh, and learn that airplane. And um, and I, I I really like it. I. Uh, I was certainly able to fly. I flew a, a Beach 1900 at, at Skyway, and then uh, I flew a, an ERJ 145 for a little while, and now the uh, the 170. And uh, it uh, it's it's really a pretty advanced airplane. It, it actually one thing that kind of separates it from the crowd as far as you know other aircraft in the peer group. It has auto throttles and vertical navigation and uh, um, some of you know a couple other things that that really. Um, I guess you don't see in a lot of the uh, uh, kind of competing aircraft that are out there. Certainly, the newer models that are slated to come out in a few years have those things. But uh, um, it's uh, it's it's really pretty nice. It'll it will auto tune the radios um, when you dial in an ILS approach. It'll put the frequency in there for you, and uh, really uh, can make certainly make you a little bit lazy. It's uh, you know it's definitely. Uh, uh, highly automated. Uh, I still try to hand fly as much as I can, but uh, um, it's it's a it's a great airplane to fly. It really uh, it, it is. Um, you know, it certainly has a lot of creature comforts and uh, things that we try not to take for granted. But I know that we do. So you like being a captain on it? I do. I do. I'm sure it's challenging. I mean, what are some of the challenges or some of the things you like? I, I definitely like. Uh, really like working with uh with different people uh we're 
we're starting to see uh, um, some some new folks filter in for the first time in in quite a while, and it's uh, it's just great to fly with with people with, with different backgrounds, people who were you know who were flying freight, people who were instructing, people who uh, maybe they were instructing in seaplanes, and and all this just kind of varied um, you know different kind of uh, backgrounds of people, and and I, I've always enjoyed that. Um, and then I, I tend to go to, I guess maybe one of the uh, one of the inspirations for the app was the fact that I go to LaGuardia so often, and there's always something new. I, I've been there thousands and thousands of times, and uh, there are are, are different. Uh, you know, you, you never know what each day or each sequence in and out of any busy major airport is going to bring, but and whether it's holding or whether it's uh, some type of, you know, really strange circling approach or, you know, it's so it's it's definitely uh, on the one end, you could say, well, going to the same place all the time is, is you know, can be repetitive and, and maybe mundane. But certainly with the with the busy airports, it's uh, there's definitely um, I certainly haven't seen it all. And, uh, I, you know, I, I get surprised by things as far as just um whether it's uh, like I said, a, di- a different tweak to the flight plan, or or some kind of you know strange request that uh, definitely keeps things interesting and uh, keeps us on our feet and, and enjoyable. But uh, but I do I, I really I really enjoy it. It is uh, I'm very very fortunate to have had the opportunity and to be able to do it. It's it's just great. And and I guess there's there's certain challenges too, especially. Now that you're doing two things at once, I mean, I know there's lots of days off. You're an airline pilot and all, but uh, there's challenges of, as far as that's concerned. You can speak towards that as far as doing your your application, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, sure. But also the challenges of your job. I mean, the actual challenges of flying the airplane, and also the challenges of trying to do something else while you're an airline pilot. Yes, indeed. Um, the uh, yeah, de- definitely a lot of challenges. The uh, uh, the changing schedule, the ever-changing schedule, the, uh, you know, I had a, a few 4.15 report times. I haven't had a 4.15 report time really <laughs> since Skyway. And uh, I thought I could handle the mornings before 4.15 is pretty early. So uh, just a, a constantly, it's like a moving target of, uh, um, you know, kind of a, a mishmash of, of work days. And uh, as far as that goes, now I'm not complaining. I, I'm able to to, to hold a, a decent schedule, but certainly, um, you know, you have to be kind of flexible to switch from mornings to evenings to, uh, maybe w- one day could just be, you know, one or two flights. The next day could be a, a really, really long day, uh, you know, 13, 14 hours on duty type of thing. So that's definitely, uh, a, a challenge that, uh, I think all of us are always looking for kind of better ways to, to deal with that. Um, certainly, uh, certainly weather is, is another one. Uh, the difference in the winter operation of the summer is, is really quite remarkable from the standpoint of de-icing and, uh, looking at how, for how long the, uh, the de-icing is effective for and changing conditions. And we, uh, you know, we always try to err on the, uh, side of being the most conservative. And, you know, that sometimes means like returning to the gate to, you know, achieve more de-icing and this sort of thing. So, um, so couple something like that with, uh, you know, maybe delayed flights or, you know, several days in a row of showing up at four fifteen, and, uh, and yeah, by the end of the, uh, the third or fourth or fifth day, you're ready for some time off to go, wow, this is, you know, this is, 
this is what we do every day, but you know, it can certainly take its toll. So definitely, uh, um, definitely does present, uh, some, some challenges for sure. And, uh, and with flying as, as much as I enjoy flying with, with different folks that, uh, that also brings with it an element of, uh, of the unknown. Certainly it's not absolute written policy, but most of the time it's certainly strongly suggested that when you start out with, uh, a new crew that the captain flies the first time and then we switch off from then on. Uh, but sometimes it takes a little while to, um, you know, to get accustomed to you know, how the other person flies and that's fine. It's, uh, you know, certainly a lot of something that makes the job really enjoyable is a lot of different techniques and a lot of, uh, different ways to accomplish, you know, the same task. And as long as it falls within the boundaries of, uh, you know, our accepted procedures, that's perfectly fine. I know that I've certainly learned a whole lot of different ways to, uh, let's say, slow the airplane down or, or accomplish a, a given task, just because maybe I hadn't been introduced to that specific kind of methodology. And uh, I think that's great. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, the, the bringing up the, the fact that you actually are have many different ways of, of flying the same aircraft, I think you t- touched on something there uh, some folks don't realize is that when you're flying, you have certain standard operating procedures, but there's many different ways to fly the airplane, and there's many different people that have different techniques. So I think that I think a lot of people think that we do the same thing all the time, but there's many ways that, like you said, you can slow the plane down, et cetera. Sure. So you, yeah. you're not just channeled into doing the same thing over and over again. You can try different techniques. So uh, just to give you a real quick, concrete example of that, you know, certainly it's it's the same in you know in a 172 or a 182 or anything like that. We have you know ways that we can add add drag and either allow for you know more lift to be produced or or slower speed or etc. One of the things that actually we're we're getting pushed a little bit by our flight standards department is to to not be afraid to lower the landing gear, which I think there's there's been kind of a stigma attached with it's noisy if you're flying fast, and it is it is noisy, but uh, that you know something you know this concept of energy management you know would would be uh, a little better served if we really need to to descend quickly. Don't be afraid to you know extend the landing gear as long as you're of course slower than the gear speed, which for us is 250 knots, pretty easy to remember. And then, you know, the, the speed brakes as well. Um, and, you know, feel free to use those. And sure, they might rumble, they might be noisy, but if the goal is a stabilized approach, certainly that, you know, is something that's going to lead to that. So so if I were going to slow down and descend rapidly, I might extend the gear and the speed brakes, whereas it would be perfectly acceptable to just pull the throttles, you know, to idle and then just wait for the airspeed to decrease and then add flaps as you know as i was you know below each kind of vfe flap speed which is i'd say more typical but um there's just an example there where neither technique is is wrong you know both techniques are used depending on the situation but if it's a case of uh, say a visual approach or maybe an uncontrolled airport that you're not familiar with or you get an air traffic control assigned, hey, how quickly can you descend to 4,000 feet or something like that, the landing gear and the speed brakes might be your best option, at least to start out, and then kind of slow the airplane down from there. And even within that, there's really no set procedure outlined. You can use different combinations. So like for us, we can use the speed brakes 
uh, until flaps two or until our second setting of flaps, then the speed brakes will automatically retract. But you know, maybe maybe you would just want to use maybe you don't want to drop the landing gear. Maybe you just want to use the brakes, put those to full, go to flaps one, and then go from there. So even just within what seems like a relatively simple kind of all right, I'm going to slow the airplane down and descend. There are, I mean, probably twenty different permutations of ways you can actually accomplish that. And within that, there are, hey, I saw somebody do this. That was a really good idea. Or, you know, it was a lot smoother when he or she did, uh, you know, this before that. So, you know, so that sort of thing is is really, um, you know, every day that goes by, I, I feel like I pick up on something or I'll notice something that another crew member does or in conversation that, uh, that you know, I can kind of put in my cap and say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and maybe try to do that or, or maybe look into to doing that next time. So it's, it's definitely good. You know, there's another thing too, that we have as a technique, I feel is trying to figure out, you talked about going to LaGuardia and mm-hmm. I fly LaGuardia and Newark and, and Kennedy all the time is trying to figure out, uh, how long I have to actually hold and, and how to figure out how much fuel I have. And there's many different ways to do this. But, mm-hmm. uh, and there's certain regulations there. But, you know, I've for years have had, you know, the airplane that I was on, I had like 5,000, 6,000 hours on it. I can't remember, but the, uh, I was, I, w- I could figure out right away how much fuel I needed, that type of thing. And it's sure. a term we call bingo fuel. And, mm-hmm. uh, what you've done is, is you've actually taken that, that technique and, and, come up with something an application which is apropos here to what we're talking about is you were able to take that and turn it into a program using your skills as a programmer and uh that's kind of neat how you how you did that so maybe you could talk a little bit about about bingo fuel which is an actual application and and how you were able to do that while you were actually an airline pilot that sounds pretty tough great well thanks um yeah i just a, a little bit of just very quick uh, history on how I kind of got back into the uh, the programming world. Uh, well, the iPhone came out in 2007, and I was very fortunate. I had actually just uh, I tried to take pretty good care of my gadgets, but I had just ruined my my phone. Zipped it in a a pair of shorts and th- sent it through the laundry completely unintentional, and uh, didn't catch it until. It was too late. I had just been out to dinner with uh, with a an acquaintance who was actually an air traffic controller and was able to get one of the first iPhones through the uh, air traffic controllers union there because he his his job was uh, kind of a, a liaison for the for their union. So he had one of the first phones, and we all kind of looked at it and drooled and said, "Wow, that's really fantastic." Well, I found myself with. Uh, with no phone, and I, one of those rare occasions where you have some just some found money, and I said, "Oh, fantastic! This is just enough to buy an iPhone. This is not something I would ever think of doing. Far too extravagant for my my means." But I said, "All right, well, you know what? I know it's it's only money, and here I didn't didn't expect to have this, so I went and uh, and got one. So I I was I got an iPhone in uh, I think it was had to be July of '07. So." Uh, been with the uh, the iPhone or the iOS platform since actually since version one, kind of hard to believe. Uh, and I, I looked and I said, well, I said if if it ever becomes possible to to program for this platform, I kind of have a feeling like many other people did that this was it was a kind of a revolutionary device. So the 
the official App Store opening and kind of subsequent releasing of what Apple calls the Software Developer Kit or the the SDK for development didn't come until 2008. So I think a full year later, and it it really kind of caught on. I want to say if you if you look at maybe the beginning of 2009, um, as far as uh, being available for um, for anyone to to develop on, and that is. Um, it was in 2009 that I first really became, you know, aware and interested in, in programming. I, I said, well, the, the, the SDK is available and, uh, you know, if I can, if I can find some way to kind of meld, you know, my aviation knowledge and, you know, knowledge in, uh, you know, in prior knowledge of programming and basically learn the underlying language Maybe I could I could parlay that into uh, you know making some sort of useful application in aviation. Kind of going with the uh, I've said it before elsewhere, but uh, using the go with what you know philosophy. And you know certainly for me it was just kind of um, it just it just made sense that I would want to do something related to aviation. So uh, the first learning or first kind of education I was able to do on the iOS platform was through the Stanford University uh, course uh, available on iTunes University. And uh, for anyone out there who is interested in pursuing this, I cannot say enough good things about the resources and the depth of knowledge and out there from certainly from the Stanford courses, but just from the just available on whether it's YouTube or the internet or in kind of more traditional means. This was, uh, I believe this was a kind of a test program for iTunes university and Stanford where they said, we're going to record our computer science course in iPhone development. And it was actually CS 193. So students attend and they had a, a camera in the back and, uh, they were, you know, they would record the class basically record the lecture and there was some PowerPoint and, and demos and et cetera, et cetera. And they, they put it together and produced it. It's, it's a very slick production. It, you know, sometimes it'll have the uh, professor speaking in a small kind of talking head kind of way and the PowerPoint in the background and, uh, and all sorts of things. Now, of course you don't really see the students, but uh, anytime a student will ask a question, professor will always go the question was he'll repeat the question because it's hard to hear the maybe you can make out a, a word or two because i'm pretty sure the camera's in the back but this was done actually the person that taught that first semester of that class was from apple and uh, this was done i think the apple stanford relationship is is a pretty good one but it was kind of done as a public service they were going to see how it you know how this how this would work if there was you know good feedback and i think that first session was downloaded over a million times in in pretty short order. So this just, you know, kind of blew everyone out of the water for how popular this was. And uh, and that was what, uh, it was at that point, I really started to get excited and said, okay, this information is out there, it's free, and now it's just up to me to try to learn and, uh, and try to go forward. I was not uh, a Mac person prior to that. All my background was, you know, in the IBM and kind of the, uh, you know, Atari 8-bit world or the, you know, the Apple II world before that. So I said, okay, I've got to learn this language called Objective-C, which is kind of the language of 
the Mac and uh, and iPhone or iOS world. It, it's the kind of the underlying. If you want to get down to nuts and bolts as far as coding and actual typing in of commands and whatnot, uh, it's that Objective C language. So um, I actually just was able to do that with a textbook that had exercises and was you know was 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 pretty well done. So I said, okay, before I really get in depth into trying to learn the the framework and how to make an iPhone app, I've got to learn Objective C. So, uh, so I did that, and that honestly was done on uh, on layovers. Uh, I would uh, on lunch breaks. I you could always see me coming. I had this six hundred page textbook <laughs> tucked away in a suitcase, and uh, you know if I had time in Toronto or wherever I was, I would try to read a chapter and you know do the exercise. I did it all by hand. Uh, on just scratch paper. Actually, the uh, the backside of the flight releases, you know, if they could just get thrown away, I just said, oh, I'll take those. And somewhere in the house here, there's, you know, my notes or my homework or whatever based on that. So it was kind of a, all self-directed there. And once I got all the way through the book and felt like I was, uh, I had at least a, a somewhat kind of good understanding of Objective C, I said, okay, I can, uh, I can go and, and, and watch these, these videos and, uh, and try to, um, you know, and try to 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 create an application, and and just refer to refer back to the videos or, or the books or whatnot, um, kind of on an as needed basis. I did watch. I couldn't really resist. They were, you know, I certainly um, they were just very very interesting and kind of compelling. So I did watch some of the uh, the lectures. But I, you know, while I was kind of getting through Objective C, and there was certainly some overlap there. But that Stanford course is. Uh, is offered with the prerequisite being that you've taken either C or Java or kind of one of the slightly less advanced languages. So, you know, certainly it's still not a, a graduate level course per se, but uh, there was some thought that there was, you know, some some knowledge there. And I was a little concerned that maybe my prior knowledge, especially having been years ago, didn't, you know, wasn't quite up to par with what maybe be required to to fully understand that. So it was done basically on off periods, you know, when I wasn't in the plane or, you know, I had, you know, time away from home where I said, all right, well, might as well be productive. I'll, I'll try to, to accomplish it this way. And I actually, I set about to say, okay, I, I've progressed far enough. I, you know, certainly seeing how, you know, there had been these kind of overnight success stories in the app store. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, time is kind of ticking away here. I really need to probably see if I can, if I can do this. I certainly don't want to miss my window of opportunity with regard to uh, maybe an idea that I come up with being, you know, maybe created by somebody else. So the first idea that I actually had for, you know, creating an iPhone application was something that had happened to me in Denver. Uh, I got a, a clearance and I did not recognize the first point. It wasn't on any of the charts. It was just this really arcane. It was Muddy Mountain, actually. I remember that. Muddy Going Mountain. Up to Canada. Muddy Mountain. And the identifier actually turns out to be Delta, Delta Yankee. But I certainly didn't know that. And some you know, FMS systems will actually, you can search by name, not ours. So if you didn't know the identifier, it was getting the low and root chart out and trying to find out, is it north of here? Is it south of here? You know. So it was just one of these kind of strange things. So I thought, bingo, there's a great idea for an app. A clearance helper. If you get something that you're unfamiliar with, how about a function to search by name and search by identifier and frequency and so on and so forth. So I said, okay. I rolled up my sleeve and said, perfect. This is going to be great. It's going to be a lot of data entry, but it's a, you know, certainly I'll start with Illinois. 
and try to get kind of a test going and I'll put it in an array and uh, the iPhone actually has really, really fantastic search functionality built into the framework of the, you know, of, so you, you don't have to really even, um, you know, create your own library or anything like that. It's, it's all, uh, you know, relatively um, easy to use and, you know, and, and so forth. So, so I did, so I said, okay, I, I was able to, to make some progress there and, uh, and got something, you know, with a few VORs and, uh, and the, you know, the search by name and the search by identifier function. And I was checking, uh, and this, I was, I was able to work on kind of on, on off hours at home. So, uh, I'd make a little bit of progress and then, you know, it was, it was slow, but steady. And I would check every once in a while, I would load up the app store on my phone and say, wow, has anybody else kind of done this? And wouldn't you know it? And things had, had kind of slowed a little bit and I, I, I do the search and here's somebody who has created this exact app, but the, he hadn't implemented the search by name feature which was just by identifier and a whole bunch of people bought it and the reviews were pretty mediocre. And a lot of the comments said, you know, I remember one guy said, I'm a military guy. I really want to look up Clovis air force base and, darn it, if I don't know, you know, if I just want to look by name, I can't do it. So like any good developer, this, this gentleman who created the app implemented that feature and it's a fantastic app. I mean, it's just, he did it very well and I can't remember the exact name of the app, but that was pretty much my idea, just lock, stock and barrel. So I went, ah, well, I'm gonna have to come up with something else. So that is what kind of led me down uh, the path to bingo fuel. And, um, Certainly, you mentioned that uh, you know you uh, flying into major metro airports. You had a, a great technique for figuring out how much fuel you needed, or you know how long you could hold. And this was something that I had observed. It was fairly difficult for people, in, including myself. We had um, there are a lot of there were still are a lot of techniques to figure this out, and really everyone had something different. Uh, we didn't have in place. Other than the the FARs, which you know basically say you know um, be able to fly to your destination and then for forty five minutes, you know in VFR conditions in IFR conditions to you know fly to your most distant alternate plus forty five minutes, etc. Um, other than those regulatory guidelines and um, a fairly Spartan set of this is how much fuel the airplane burns per minute and per hour, there wasn't at that time, a really concrete program for figuring out bingo fuel. So, um, you know, I'm assigned a hold, you know, let's say over Allentown VOR going into LaGuardia, which is pretty common. Um, you know, that's 70 miles from LaGuardia. I've got this much fuel on board. My EFC time, I expect further clearance time is 40 minutes from now. Am I going to be able to make it to that time? Or am I going to encounter a situation where I can no longer you know, either have that reserve fuel remaining or I, you know, go to my alternate without, uh, you know, I, maybe I need to make that decision to, I can only hold for say 15, 20 minutes. So the method to get there, to find out what that number is, where you have to say, all right, at, at 5,500 pounds, I have to go, I have to go to my destination. I have to go to my alternate. I have to maybe go somewhere else, but that I can't continue along my current path without, you know, going into my emergency fuel or, or whatever the case is. Um, 
it was a, a difficult task to uh, to to figure out for many uh, captains, first officers, dispatchers, kind of kind of all across the board. And one of the reasons was that there was uh, there wasn't an agreed upon way, at least at our company, uh, a really concrete way to figure this out. So I said, okay, there's the problem. I, I can create a you know I have a solution for this. When I set about to do this, I said I want this to be useful to not just airline folks, but to everybody. If the uh, you know if I'm holding in a 172, I want to be able to put in you know how many gallons on board I have, and you know maybe come up with uh, you know like a, all right at, at six gallons I I have to, to you know to go to my alternate or, or whatnot, um, or you know corporate folks or, or military folks or so I said I I don't want to make this just an airline application though from my own experience I knew that it would probably be most applicable, at least in my kind of peer group, to airline folks. Uh, I also said, I, I made the decision to say, I, I want people from, you know, all different countries to be able to use this. Certainly, there's a, a rudimentary understanding of English and aviation. And uh, I thought if the application did well, I could localize it and, you know, put the, the uh, you know, the text into Spanish or German or, or something like that. But um, from the standpoint of units... I said, as much as I can, I'm going to leave units out of it because um, at the end of the day, if I'm if someone is going to be using this in the airplane, really the number that's being read off a gauge or a computer screen or something is really the only thing that, that is at that moment important. And if I'm talking about nautical miles or statute miles or pounds or liters or kilograms, that's really not in the, you know, important to what the application was doing. So those were a few kind of clarifying things that made it a little easier. Certainly there are plenty of conversion applications out there. I, I kind of toyed with, should I put an option to convert pounds to gallons in there? But I said, you know what, just in the keep it simple kind of mentality, I said, I want this to be people to be able to get in, get out, get their information and, you know, kind of enhance situational awareness if they were actually using it in the plane or if it's kind of used in a teaching sense to be able to just say, all right, well, this is, this is what you'd see in the airplane and, and kind of go from there. So I had my, I, I had my, uh, kind of my idea and thought a little bit about implementation. And then, um, so I started working on bingo fuel in, in 2010 and, uh, two things happened in 2010. I, my son was born and I had, uh, one of many check rides. And it was, like I said, I, I was able to uh, do a lot of work on the app right up till a month before I had a check ride. And I kind of had to put it on hold. And then once my son was born, I had about a six month period where I just really didn't look at it at all. And then had to kind of slowly kind of work things back in. Uh, schedule wise, I was doing a lot of uh, local trips or day trips. So I didn't have a lot of nights away, which was great. But uh, it really didn't leave much time to work on the application at all. So I found that I was I was able to accomplish things in kind of bursts. And uh, when my son was very young, when he would take a morning nap, I'd be able to maybe get half an hour or 40 minutes of actual work in. And it's interesting that I chatted about this already, but uh, I found, especially if I was away from it for a while, it would take me 10, 15 minutes sometimes just get reacquainted with what I was working on. And it felt so similar to how I felt when I had to start over when I was working on my private or get checked out somewhere. It was the exact same feeling of 
oh gosh, I was, I figured out how to get this value to display, but how did I do it? So what I ended up doing is I started just, um, you know, programmers are often chastised for not commenting or, or leaving, you know, writing remarks or, you know, putting enough kind of explanation in their code. I just went completely nuts and just said, uh, you know, if, if it might be seven or eight days before I can work on this, I'm just going to have to comment like crazy and just say, here's what I did. Here's how I figured this out. This works. This doesn't work. So my code actually became just this kind of almost this narrative of figured this out, you know, fantastic and so on and so forth. And that made it a lot easier because it really, when I, when I didn't have consistent time to work on it, it, uh, it was difficult to really be able to use that time productively. And I found that the beginning part of it was spent just trying to get kind of spooled up again to, to kind of work. So I was able to, after my son kind of gave up the morning nap, time to work on the application was, was very sparse. And uh, so that takes us through 2011 and 2012. I actually, I, I was of course continuously checking to see if anyone had done a, a similar application. And I did at that point find one that was similar. And it's a good thing because it was at that point that I actually changed the the focus of the app a little bit. I had just concentrated on, you know, maybe how to figure out bingo fuel. But then I thought, well, that's that's certainly a part of it, but I think people would really be concerned with how long can I hold and how much fuel am I going to burn from the point where I'm assigned the hold to my destination. So I identified a couple of key things that I thought would enhance the app and allow people to use one, two, three, or, you know, maybe just one part of the application for maybe I know my bingo fuel number already. Maybe I just wanted to know how long I can hold, or maybe just a very quick way to figure out almost like getting out an E6B, how much fuel am I going to burn from this point to that point? And maybe they wouldn't use any of the other functionality of the app in that session. So the fact that there was an application out there that did have kind of as a, a component of it, a way to figure out bingo fuel really forced me to figure out a way to make my application stand out. And certainly the focus would still be figuring out that bingo number, but it really kind of honed in and allowed me to uh, to kind of really get the design part of it down to where, to where it is today. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good summary of it. So I guess the kind of the last part is I was able to do work on it off and on through 2012. And then it was in uh, really kind of winter of 2013, where I said, okay, I can't believe how long I've been working on this. I have to get something out there. And I was able to, to really put a lot of work in, in February and March, did some testing and actually put the app or, you know, registered for the uh, Apple developer program the app was submitted in April of 2013, and happy to say it was approved by Apple on the first pass and available for sale. I think it was April 17th of 2013. So, certainly, it's it's a great question. I took a long time answering it, but uh, it's difficult to uh, to really, you know, with certainly with family and 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 job and everything else going on, to be able to really carve out some time to work on it. But it certainly is possible. And then. There's so many things that I learned maybe for a, another podcast another day as far as just things that I would that took so much time that now I know and that I can apply to 
my next application and that that will greatly reduce the amount of time. The one piece I will say is icons. Uh, sounds like such a an easy thing, but uh, you need small icons, large icons, icons for the tab bar, you know, all sorts. And there's not a real standardized way of doing this. You just kind of have to make yourself a 24 by 24 small icon and uh, and submit it. So I've since discovered that there are Photoshop scripts and kind of automated things that, that make this a lot easier. That definitely was a hang up. I, I really wish I had done that a long time ago because that when, kind of when I got to the end and said, wow, the app's working, it's it's ready to go. You know, it was another week or so for me to kind of, you know, load up Photoshop and get the image and shrink it down and make sure that it looked okay. So kind of minutia like that, that uh, I would definitely accomplish, you know, kind of early in the design stage. And then, of course, if you come up with a better icon or, or you know, you can always change it. But uh, it was, you know, there were certainly some, uh, you know, some things along the way that, that took ended up taking me a lot of time or, or you know, questions that took a lot of time to answer that knowing that now would greatly reduce the uh, the fo- footprint for the app. I get that question a lot. Hey, how long did this take you to make? And I said, well, it's a hard question to answer. It was if I were to add up all the time uh, worked on and without breaks, it would. I would say the learning objective C is probably about six months. The Stanford lectures, probably realistically three to six months. And then the actual creating of the application, which of course could be done while you were doing that, maybe start to finish uh, probably probably about six months or so. And my app is, is very simple. I mean, there are applications that really do amazing, incredible things. And mine is, 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 is pretty doggone simple. So I don't know if that time frame would be accurate, but that's kind of what it was for me. That's the beauty, I think, of the app as, uh, you know, as I was looking at it, is the fact that it is so simple. I think that's, that's really important because you have so many apps out there that, that aren't, aren't quite that simple. But, uh, so I think, I think you did a great job on it. I don't actually have it myself, but it's, it's a, it's a real cool application and, Bingo fuel or how much fuel you're going to burn, it's right there and it's real simple to place those numbers in there and, and just press a button instead of having to find everything. Because there's many other apps out there that I've played with where you're trying to calculate something and it takes you forever to do it. So this one's pretty quick, pretty easy. But, you know, you, you touched on a really good point here as far as trying to, to do something while you have an aviation career. Now, I don't have a family and... I have, you know, everybody knows airline pilots have many days off. I usually get about 14 days off per month. But nice. even with that, I struggle to do the other things that I have, like my podcast. I'm involved mm-hmm. in four different podcasts, and I I have so many things going on that it's, it's very difficult to schedule that. So I personally, and I'd like to get your viewpoint on this, I personally have, have realized that the most important thing is to get sleep and be safe as a pilot because that's what's producing the most income right now. And the next thing is that I have to work within those bounds, and it makes me much more efficient as far as being able to put together a podcast like this. You know, we, sure. we were able to get together at the last minute and say, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's go ahead and record it. I have a stretch mm-hmm. of five days off, but I know tomorrow I'm not going to have to get up early and put my passengers at risk. So, uh, you know, there's... I don't have a family, but I'm sure you, I think you touched on it, you know, trying to get overnights might help a little bit. So, you know, what, what kind of advice would you give to somebody that's, that says, Hey, listen, I want to be an airline pilot and I want to do something else. Um, you know, is this a good idea and how do I go about that? And what kind of advice can you give there? No, it's a great question. And, uh, I would say 
Um, I would say absolutely. Uh, it is possible. Uh, it's just, it might not be a quite as cut and dry as someone with, uh, a typical nine to five job who then, uh, maybe goes to night school or is that's kind of a, a typical thing or, uh, you know, trying to think of people who do, you know, two op- occupations that are, are maybe more, um, you know, maybe a little more normal or, uh, or perhaps more common. Uh, maybe the, uh, the hospital worker or the the doctor who, you know, sees patients Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then has his own practice or something like that. It's maybe not a very good example, but certainly there uh, is kind of a a framework for people who do this sort of thing. From the pilot standpoint, I would say it is possible. I would say go in with the understanding that it it might just take you a little longer to, uh, to get to the point where the other job or the side job was, was able to, to maybe be successful or to accomplish what you had wanted to accomplish with it, uh, which was certainly my experience. Uh, but for me, the, certainly the, the first application, the whole process from learning to, you know, kind of back in the books to, um, you know, learning the underlying language to, uh, learning some, you know, design elements and, then into the, you know, kind of coding and testing, all that was still very, very enjoyable and something that I really enjoyed, certainly from a very young age. And it was, I say this and people kind of look at me strange, but I said, it was just really a lot of fun. Uh, It was, it was very rewarding. So I think if there's, you know, if there's maybe a, you know, a silver lining or, or a common thread there, it's if the other thing that you want to do, certainly if you want to fly as your, your main career, that's fantastic. Certainly, it's what I do. But if there's something else, if that something else is kind of intrinsically enjoyable to you, then it won't really matter. Uh, you know, as as long as it, it's something that you really enjoy. If it takes, like it took me, you know, three and a half years from start to finish to to complete this application or to go from from learning to uh, you know, actual the app being for sale in the store. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Now, certainly there were ways that, uh, looking back, I could have probably made better use of my time and just, you know, said I'm going to be, I, I, and I felt like I, I was like this in kind of the beginning when I didn't have, um, you know, when, when before my, my son was born, I was able to say, all right, no matter what, I'm going to carve out an hour and work on this or do some reading or, or whatnot. And I think if, you know, you just, you know, dealt the challenge of life, certainly I'm, I'm, very, very happy to, you know, with my family. But uh, I think there are knowing that if maybe your approach has to change a little bit, there were certainly ways I could have said I probably could have found, you know, some time to do even just a little bit of work. Instead, it really was kind of a, you know, maybe I'd have a two week stretch where I was able to work on the app. And then I'd go for a very long period of time, just for whatever reason, whether it was, you know, schedule or upcoming check ride or, you know, other kind of obligations that I wasn't able to work on it. So that would be probably my other piece of advice is maybe before you start on a project or, you know, on a, on a side career, like, like, you know, programming or something like that, have a few, maybe outline a few different ways you could do it where you said, all right, if something changes, you know, maybe, you know, I can take a, a longer lunch and spend half of the time, you know, reading or, or working on things or whatnot, and maybe just a, a different effective use of your time. And that's, really uh probably the, the biggest challenge in all this is just finding 
really the, the time to, to put in. But ultimately, very rewarding. I'm, I'm very, even though it took me quite a long time, I'm, I'm very happy to have done it. And I, and I think it has kind of put in place the, the kind of method for me to, uh, to create, you know, additional applications and, and certainly look forward to doing that. So, uh, some people would look and say, well, geez, you know, three and a half years and, you know, now it's, uh, the application's for sale for a dollar ninety nine, and was it really worth it? And look at all the time you spent. But uh, it was never really truly about that. Certainly, uh, it's great to have a, a little bit of extra income, and you never know. You know, when I when I do an iPad version of the app, if it happens to catch on, or maybe people who are familiar with this application, maybe that would uh, make them more likely to purchase whatever the next one is. And certainly, you know, these the it's it's certainly not something I would go into thinking that well. I'm going to be an an app developer and a programmer, and that's going to replace my income as a pilot. And boy, it'll allow me to just you know drop all my trips and you know so on and so forth. That's I think it's a little bit pie in the sky, but certainly it it does provide some income, and uh, and that is uh, really for me kind of icing on the cake because it really is something that that I enjoy doing and that I continue to enjoy. So as far as advice goes, if it's something that you really like doing. Uh, so you'll find a way to uh, either you know turn that into some income or just to be able to to accomplish that task, whatever it is. Well, it sounds like you've combined both your passions in life for computers and also for uh, flying, and you've done a, a great job of it. And and I, I like the fact you didn't mention just about the money. It's uh, it's all about enjoying what you do, and you you found that you found that position in your life and be able to. Uh, kind of mold a lifestyle and uh i guess the real question now is uh before we close is you know what's what's next for for chris is uh is it a different uh, airline and i know you're gonna maybe develop a few more applications you know where 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 do we go from here it is um hopefully would be uh moving on to uh i guess what you could say a major airline or a legacy airline, if I'm fortunate enough to have that opportunity to do so in the next uh, year or two, that is uh, certainly uh, an attempt to do that is definitely in, in the cards here. So that'll be uh, hopefully a, a pretty pretty big change. And as far as the uh, the applications go, I do. I have um, some plans I'm hoping to uh, branch out into the slightly more challenging kind of uh, facets of creating apps and um, I see with my son, who is uh, almost three years old, uh, that he is uh, able to very quickly comprehend the notion of pointing and pinching and zooming. So this, uh, these kind of phone or mobile ways of getting data and interacting with the device is uh, is really is is pretty easy for him. And I wonder. You know, if maybe there's some similarity from when I first looked at the computer as a as a as a young kid, there are a tremendous amount of children's applications out there. So I thought uh, there would maybe be a way for me to combine some of the aviation world with maybe an application more focused on uh, maybe you know a little bit of of teaching or or learning for um, for for kids in that age range. And I've got a a perfect beta tester built in to maybe help me out with that. So really the the other reason that that's very interesting to me is it does delve much more into the graphics, sound, and uh, what they call touch events, and uh, really more complicated and uh, 
much more involved and and just you know, than than the application uh, than bingo fuel though the passing of values from one uh, screen to the other was uh, was quite a challenge i i definitely you know even when i was you know programming when i was very young there was definitely a, a fascination with you know being able to uh to draw things on the screen and and whatnot so i feel like maybe a, a, a children centered application would allow me to kind of uh, expand my knowledge into some of the different kind of multimedia functions of the, you know, of the iOS platform. And then from the slightly more serious aspect of it, um, there are some, uh, um, some rules and regulations that are, that are changing with, that with regard to um, you know, the amount of rest required and stuff like that. So I think there are definitely some opportunity to maybe kind of use the, uh, the way that, uh, that bingo fuel works and maybe, use that same framework for for maybe a, a similar application so definitely hope to uh to go forward with that the other kind of uh big thing that i hope to uh really be able to do is uh develop for the ipad i don't have an ipad yet and probably will be getting one soon and that is uh, kind of a, a different design paradigm from from the iphone which is kind of what i'm most familiar with and uh, i get the question all the time hey when's an android version coming out be honest with you, I would really love to d- release an Android version of Bingo Fuel because I, I do get that question quite a bit. And so that's another avenue I, I could possibly look at. Um, you know, it would be kind of learning a, a new a new framework, but I'm fairly certain that some of the Android development is in Java or Eclipse, which I think has a C or a kind of a C++ um, kind of flavor to it. So it might be actually more similar to what I encounter on the PC, whereas Objective C is kind of its own, uh, kind of its own animal with syntax and everything else. So, uh, possibly branching off into some different platforms. Certainly, the iPad, maybe Android going forward, and then maybe looking at uh, like a kid, a kids application, kind of centered in aviation. Then also maybe trying to uh, to look at some of the uh, changes in the industry that are coming up, and maybe use that uh, to kind of uh, inspire another type of application. Well, it sounds like you have a, a lot of ideas and it sounds like you, you know where you want to go at, uh, in this career and any career is very varied the path. And, and the one great thing about hearing from you is the fact that you've really been able to vary that path, but still get to the goal and still yes. get to where you want to be. And I think that's terrific. But, uh, well, Chris, I, I really appreciate your being here with us today and, you know, helping people realize they can have two careers. One obviously has to trump the other, but, uh, but you're able to put the two together. Um, as far as the application's concerned, if, uh, our listeners want to actually go out and take a look at it, one of the great ways and also helps uh, support this podcast is you can go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash bingo fuel or just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com and, and look at this episode and uh, and look at episode 35 and click on the links from there. Uh, that does help us out here. Where where else can they get in touch with you, uh, Chris, on the internet? Sure thing. I appreciate it. Well, I am a, uh, as we chatted about, I'm a recent uh, Twitter uh, account holder. And if, uh, if you want to follow me or send me something via there, that's, uh, at sign CGO. So Charlie golf, Oscar, so CGO apps, so C G O A P P S. And then, uh, as far as, uh, I do have a, a blog that, uh, is kind of in its formative stages where the thought was to try to chronicle some of the 
creation of the application, and that is uh, cgoapps.wordpress.com. Only a couple entries in there, kind of a, a work in progress. And then uh, certainly if, uh, if you want to email me, you can do that as well. That's cgoapps at gmail.com, all kind of centered around that one and, uh, and uh, pretty easy to find. So I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, and we'll have all those, that contact information so you don't have to scramble to write it down. If you're in your car right now, well, you can just go out to the, uh, to the website and uh, aviationcareerspodcast.com, and I'll have all that contact information for Chris. And again, Chris, thank, thanks a lot for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, you've really helped me understand a little bit more, and uh, I'm sure you've helped some of the listeners understand more about well, the challenges and also the benefits of, of having another career besides uh, just aviation. It's been, been quite a varied path. And uh, and for those folks listening, you know, again, thanks for listening to Aviation Careers Podcast. And, you know, I hope this podcast has helped motivate you to pursue your passion and translate that passion into a really fulfilling career. You know, whatever your career field you choose, remember to live your life with passion and pursue a career that fulfills that passion. If you pursue a career simply for the money, you'll end up being really miserable. You know, occasionally I speak with airline captains who are making really good money and have multiple homes, a motorhome, a boat, an airplane. But you know, they're not really happy. And the reason is because they became airline pilots just for the good pay. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, having money makes paying the bills much easier and allows you to buy things that, you know, you want, such as the toys that we talk about and the things we like to enjoy in life. But with that said, if you pursue a career simply for the money, you're going to be miserable, just like some of the airline captains I fly with. Please make sure whatever you decide to do in life is something you have a passion for. If you work in something you really enjoy, like I do, the money you receive is just a bonus. You get to do something that you really enjoy, just like I do, and get paid. This is one of the most wonderful feelings in life. So I want you to do something for me today. Think about one thing you would love to do in life if money was no object. It could be sailing, fishing, golfing, you know, designing computer systems like Chris has done. Whatever it is, then I want you to do me a favor. Start imagining yourself getting paid to do something you really love. Imagine going to work every day and enjoying your job. Now, what I want you to do is take some action and start designing the life that fulfills that dream. Begin by taking just one step now and start moving towards that goal. Maybe you like your job right now, but you really are passionate about pursuing another career. Well, see if you can work part-time in that career. Ask people what it's like to work in that career. If it involves aviation, then listen to people, such as the people on this podcast who are doing what you want to do. But do something. My hope is that this podcast will truly inspire you to pursue and reach your career goal. And if you want to hear about a career in aviation you haven't heard on this podcast, then please go to the contact page on Aviation Careers Podcast and put in a request for an interview. You all know, find somebody in the field of aviation that you're interested in and have them on this show. Also, if you have a career question, of course, just please write me and uh, I'll answer that question right here on the show. So if you've found this podcast helpful and want to help contribute, please visit our sponsors at aviationcareerspodcast.com. And if you're interested, of course, in advertising or contributing, just send me an email and I'd help, love to help you out there. Again, I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Chris as much as I did concerning his journey from computer to the cockpit. We'll talk to you soon and uh, safe flying. We'll talk to you next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream. 
and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved. <laughs>